The Trouble with X by C.S. Lewis I suppose I may assume that seven out of ten of those who read these lines are in some kind of difficulty about some other human being. Either at work or at home, either the people who employ you or those whom you employ, either those who share your house or those whose house you share, either your in-laws or parents or children, your wife or your husband, are making life harder for you than it need be even in these days. It is to be hoped that we do not often mention these difficulties, especially the domestic ones, to outsiders. But sometimes we do. An outside friend asks us why we are looking so glum, and the truth comes out. On such occasions, the outside friend usually says, But why don't you tell them? Why don't you go to your wife, or husband, or father, or daughter, or boss, or landlady, or lodger, and have it all out? People are usually reasonable. All you've got to do is make them see things in the right light. Explain it to them in a reasonable, quiet, friendly way. And we, whatever we say outwardly, think sadly to ourselves, He doesn't know, X. We do. We know how utterly hopeless it is to make X see reason. Either we've tried it over and over again, tried it till we are sick of trying it, or else we've never tried it because we saw from the beginning how useless it would be. We know that if we attempt to have it all out with X, there will be either a scene, or else X will stare at us in blank amazement and say, I don't know what on earth you're talking about. Or else, which is perhaps worst of all, X will quite agree with us and promise to turn over a new leaf and put everything on a new footing and then, twenty-four hours later, will be exactly the same as X has always been. You know, in fact, that any attempt to talk things over with X will shipwreck on the old, fatal flaw in X's character. And you see, looking back, how all the plans you have ever made always have shipwrecked on that fatal flaw, on X's incurable jealousy, or laziness, or touchiness, or muddle-headedness, or bossiness, or ill-temper, or changeableness. Up to a certain age you have perhaps had the illusion that some external stroke of good fortune an improvement in health, a rise of salary, the end of the war, would solve your difficulty. But you know better now. The war is over, and you realize that even if the other things happened, X would still be X, and you would still be up against the same old problem. Even if you became a millionaire, your husband would still be a bully, or your wife would still nag, or your son would still drink, or you'd still have to have your mother-in-law to live with you. It is a great step forward to realize that this is so to face the fact that even if all external things went right, real happiness would still depend on the character of the people you have to live with, and that you can't alter their characters. And now comes the point. When you have seen this, you have, for the first time, had a glimpse of what it must be like for God. For, of course, this is, in one way, just what God himself is up against. He has provided a rich, beautiful world for people to live in. He has given them intelligence to show them how it can be used, and conscience to show them how it ought to be used. He has contrived that the things they need for their biological life, food, drink, rest, sleep, exercise, should be positively delightful to them. And having done all this, he then sees all his plans spoiled, just as our little plans are spoiled, by the crookedness of the people themselves. All the things he has given them to be happy with, they turn into occasions for quarreling and jealousy, and excess and hoarding, and tomfoolery. You may say it is very different for God, because he could, if he pleased, alter people's characters, and we can't. But this difference doesn't go quite as deep as we may at first think. God has made it a rule for himself that he won't alter people's character by force. He can and will alter them, but only if the people will let him. In that way he has really and truly limited his power. Sometimes we wonder why he has done so, or even wish that he hadn't, but apparently he thinks it worth doing. He would rather have a world of free beings with all its risks than a world of people who did right like machines because they couldn't do anything else. The more we succeed in imagining what a world of perfect automatic beings would be like, the more, I think, we shall see his wisdom.
I said that when we see how all our plans shipwreck on the characters of the people we have to deal with, we are, in one way, seeing what it must be like for God, but only in one way. There are two respects in which God's view must be very different from ours. In the first place, he sees, like you, how all the people in your home or your job are in various degrees awkward or difficult. But when he looks into that home or factory or office, he sees one more person of the same kind, the one you never do see. I mean, of course, yourself. That is the next great step in wisdom, to realize that you also are just that sort of person. You also have a fatal flaw in your character. All the hopes and plans of others have again and again shipwrecked on your character, just as your hopes and plans have shipwrecked on theirs. It is no good passing this over with some vague general admission such as, of course I know I have my faults. It is important to realize that there is some really fatal flaw in you, something which gives the others just that same feeling of despair which their flaws give you. And it is almost certainly something you don't know about, like what the advertisements call halitosis, which everyone notices except the person who has it. But why, you ask, don't the others tell me? Believe me, they have tried to tell you over and over again, and you just couldn't take it. Perhaps a good deal of what you call their nagging or bad temper or queerness are just their attempts to make you see the truth. And even the faults you do know, you don't know fully. You say, I admit I lost my temper last night, but the others know that you're always doing it, that you are a bad-tempered person. You say, I admit I drank too much last Saturday, but everyone else knows that you are a habitual drunkard. That is one way in which God's view must differ from mine. He sees all the characters, I see all except my own. But the second difference is this. He loves the people in spite of their faults. He goes on loving. He does not let go. Don't say, it's all very well for him. He hasn't got to live with them. He has. He is inside them as well as outside them. He is with them far more intimately and closely and incessantly than we can ever be. Every vile thought within their minds, and ours, every moment of spite, envy, arrogance, greed, and self-conceit comes right up against his patient and longing love, and grieves his spirit more than it grieves ours. The more we can imitate God in both these respects, the more progress we shall make. We must love X more, and we must learn to see ourselves as a person of exactly the same kind. Some people say it is morbid to be always thinking of one's own faults. That would be all very well if most of us could stop thinking of our own without soon beginning to think about those of other people. For, unfortunately, we enjoy thinking about other people's faults, and in the proper sense of the word morbid, that is the most morbid pleasure in the world. We don't like rationing which is imposed upon us, but I suggest one form of rationing which we ought to impose on ourselves. Abstain from all thinking about other people's faults, unless your duties as a teacher or parent make it necessary to think about them. Whenever the thoughts come unnecessarily into one's mind, why not simply shove them away and think of one's own faults instead? For there, with God's help, one can do something. Of all the awkward people in your house or job, there is only one whom you can improve very much. That is the practical end at which to begin. And really, we'd better. The job has to be tackled some day, and every day we put it off will make it harder to begin. What, after all, is the alternative? You see clearly enough that nothing, not even God with all his power, can make X really happy as long as X remains envious, self-centered, and spiteful. Be sure there is something inside you which, unless it is altered, will put it out of God's power to prevent your being eternally miserable. While that something remains, there can be no heaven for you, just as there can be no sweet smells for a man with a cold in the nose, and no music for a man who is deaf. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us there is something growing up which will of itself be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. The matter is serious. Let us put ourselves in his hands at once, this very day, this hour.